Welcome back to the Leslie Marshall Show. This is Mark Grimaldi, Leslie's executive producer, filling in for Leslie today. She will be back tomorrow at her normal time. But in the meantime, I am joined by a representative from a great organization called the NRDC. You've heard their guests and representatives on our show many times. Today, I have the pleasure of being joined by Han Chen, who is the international climate advocate with the National Resource Defense Council's International and Climate and Clean Air Programs. She helps implement NRDC's strategy to address climate change at the international level and promote strong domestic implementation in key countries around the world. Today we're going to be talking about the uh, countries' report cards uh, of different countries around the world that are involved with the upcoming COP21 climate conference in Paris. Thanks for joining us today, Han. How are you? I'm doing really well. How are you doing? Good, good. So uh, I had been looking as to uh, when this conference was coming up, and I happened to find your piece, and I thought you did a great job of not only describing kind of what's at stake, but I thought it was really interesting uh, the way that you kind of graded out the countries ahead of the talks, because in looking for information uh, kind of to research this topic, I kind of had a, you know, a, a decent idea of what the different countries had done previously and you know maybe what some of them were hoping to do uh, ahead of this conference, but I thought this really did a good job of kind of grading them, not just overall, but specifically on each part of their approach, which I think is really important because, as you know, you know, writing this piece, uh, you know, some countries are doing really well in some areas, but not in others. And, you know, really, when you grade them out overall, it gives you a good vision. So before we kind of get into the specifics of, you know, what each of these countries is grading, why don't you kind of tell us a little bit about this conference and kind of what's at stake uh, at the end of this month? Sure, we'd be happy to. Yeah, so the COP21 conference coming up, um, is you know part of this UN process, um, the Framework Convention on Climate Change, signed back in the 90s, and it's looking to get all countries committed to reducing their carbon emissions and their greenhouse gas emissions over you know the coming decades. We know that the temperature has already risen by about 0.85 degrees Celsius, you know, since pre-industrial times, and that is due to a variety of actions um, by developed and developing countries, you know, factories, you know, agriculture, everything that we've done to contribute to this issue. And so we're getting to 2015, and this is the year when we have to sign a new agreement that will come into effect in 2020. And each country is putting forward their commitments for what they're willing to do to help reduce emissions globally um, for the post-2020 period. Now, so this is, I'm trying, you know, I'm talking to a lot of people trying to explain why this is such a big deal. It's not just that the other agreement is expiring, but it's really also, you know, kind of all of the nations that are going to be here. I mean, this is the largest conference that France has ever organized, I was reading. Yeah, you know, it'll be quite massive. It'll be at a conference center um, about 15 kilometers out of the city, and they're expecting about 40,000 people to be there for the events, and then you know, this will include country delegates, NGOs, people from all over the world are going to be taking part. On the other side of the break, we're going to have Han kind of break down the uh, report cards of each of these countries and kind of, you know, where not only does the United States rank, which is very important, as most of us listening 
live here in America, but also where do other very important countries like China rank? Um, what about the European Union, Canada, our neighbor to the north, Mexico, our neighbor to the south? Um, these things are very important because, as you know, this is not just our problem, but it is the world's problem. Although we play a major role in not only the amount of pollution put into the air, we have to play a major role in how to find a solution. If you'd like to speak with Han or myself, the number is 888-653-7543. Once again, this is Mark Romaldi in for Leslie Marshall. Welcome back to the Leslie Marshall Show. This is Mark Romaldi, Leslie's executive producer, keeping the seat warm for Leslie, who will be returning to her normal showtime tomorrow from 4 to 6 p.m. Eastern. In the meantime, I am lucky enough to be joined by Han Chen, who is the international climate advocate with the NRDC, the National Resource Defense Council's International and Climate Air Climate and Clean Air Programs. We're talking about COP21, uh, which is the climate conference in Paris that's coming up at the end of the, this month. And uh, Han wrote a piece that you can find uh, called Country Report Cards, Evaluating National Climate Pledges for the COP21 Climate Conference in Paris. Um, Han, thank you and welcome back. Um, going into how you graded out each of the countries, I know you used um, four different criteria, uh, four key pillars, as you called it, in, in order to grade uh, the countries. Um, a universal agreement would be one. The climate pledges of the countries, or INDCs, would be two. Finance, number three, which is very important as you bring up. And then number four, the actions of local authorities and non-state actors like companies, businesses, civil society groups. So starting off with, um, you know, number one, a universal agreement. Why don't you kind of tell us about that, you know, overall using that as a pillar and then give us some highlights of how some of the countries graded out uh, as far as a universal agreement. Yeah, great, Mark. I'd be happy to. So the the four areas you laid out, that's sort of the rankings that we would have for the overall COP conference itself because, you know, the success of the COP is based on whether or not there is this universal agreement because in previous iterations it wasn't true that all countries committed to reducing emissions. But now, you know, developing, developed countries alike are going to be part of this agreement and reducing their emissions and doing other things. So that's the first pillar. The second one is these INDCs. So we're grading each of these countries on the uh, INDCs themselves, and I can go into the four different areas um, that we use for grading them. The third part of the Paris Agreement is going to be finance and how much co- how much money uh, countries will be committing to transforming their own economies, but also for developing countries, how much you know, aid and assistance and investment we're willing to make so that their growth in the future won't be powered by coal plants and won't be powered by, you know, all of these really high carbon emitting sources. So going mm -hmm. into uh, the INDCs, you've got, you know, the criteria which people, again, can find at the NRDC's website. Han wrote this great piece that I had mentioned to you. You have makes an effort, shows responsibility, uh, neat and accurate work, and I like the title, Plays Well with Others, which really <laughs> rings true uh, in these negotiations. So why don't you kind of, you know, I'll give you your free reign here to kind of go with what you find interesting and important uh, on this report card and just kind of go in whatever order you see fit. Yeah, great. So the um, makes an effort is, you know, really looking at whether or not countries are helping 
the world to meet the two-degree goal. So two degrees Celsius is the amount of temperature rise that we agreed to back in the Copenhagen talks in 2009 for how much we can get to without really going over the edge into really serious catastrophic climate impacts. And so are all countries doing their part to get us there? Not necessarily. You know, um, a lot of the developing countries have put forward pretty ambitious targets. You know, China, India have put forward goals where they actually are reducing their emissions intensity. So, you know, they get a, a decent grade on that. Developed countries that aren't putting forward a huge effort, you know, Russia, Canada, Australia, Japan, they could be doing more and they're not to get us where we need to go. Um, so that's sort of the makes an effort bucket. Uh, in terms of showing responsibility, we graded that based on whether or not countries actually have plans in place domestically to implement what they're promising. So you go and tell the UN that you're going to reduce your emissions and this and that. What are your domestic policies in place to actually get it done? The U.S. has the Clean Power Plan and many other initiatives, auto fuel standards, energy efficiency standards. Does China have the same thing? Yes, they've got a, a number of standards in place for how they're going to get to their goal to peak emissions before 2030. Um, so that's the show's responsibility bucket. And then on neat and accurate work, this is a very important area because, you know, the transparency of how much each country is emitting is important, and we need countries to report every two to three years or so on what their emissions have been in the past and maybe where their projections will be in the future. So that's the third area we're grading them on. And then the fourth area um, is plays well with others. And I think, you know, that's pretty self-explanatory. It's whether they're doing well on the international stage. You know, the U.S. and China had a really strong landmark agreement in November of 2014 um, laying out a lot of these different things that they're planning to do. The EU and China have similarly made agreements, and recently the French and the Chinese have agreed that, you know, they're both supportive of doing a five-year review on the pledges. So five years from now, if they think that they can do even better, it's possible we can get each country to up their pledges so that we're getting you know, more ambitious goals and better policies all around. So those are sort of the four areas that we looked at to make the report card. What are some, in looking at each individual category, you know, what are some of uh, probably the, the best and worst um, actions that some of these, or lack of actions that you would say, you know, any of these countries, feel free to hop around. But I was kind of uh, impressed, which I didn't know about, um, Brazil uh, trying to become the first developing country to take on an absolute emissions cut. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? And then, you know, what are some of the, the highlights and lowlights, you know, any country you'd like to mention? Right, exactly. I think the Brazil target is a strong one because, you know, developing countries, because they're still in the process of industrializing, they've got a lot of growth economically um, to do just to catch up with developed countries. We're expecting that if they were doing exactly what the U.S. or China or the um, EU did when they were growing, you know, there'd be so much more emissions going into the air every year. So the fact that they're willing in Brazil to go on a path of low-carbon growth, I mean, it's a huge commitment for them. Um, and we're, you know, ranking all of these countries based on that sort of effort from what would be a normal development path where no one is paying attention to these environmental issues to one where they're looking at, you know, a low-carbon path in the future. And so, you know, Brazil ranks well. India ranks well because it has a target for solar and wind power to be 175 gigawatts um, by 2022. 
they're doing very well. Now, a country that's not doing particularly well is Canada because they've put forward a plan for 2030, but it's not particularly ambitious because they can't actually meet it. So they fail on making an effort and on showing responsibility because they're still developing their tar sands industry, you know, and it's actually causing their emissions to rise, you know, at a time when most countries, developed countries, have been able to reduce emissions significantly in the last few years. Now, so, speaking of, sorry, real quick to interject, uh, speaking of Canada, obviously, uh, you know, a lot of people have noticed, obviously, they're having an administration change. They're going from a conservative government to a more liberal government. Um, I didn't really follow a lot of the platform that was being laid out in that election. I would figure it's safe to assume that the government is going to be trying to have a more ambitious climate, uh, you know, um, I guess, platform, you could say, but obviously it's not safe to necessarily assume that. Um, what have you heard, you know, coming out of Canada? Are you more hopeful? And, you know, what are some things that we should look for to see if they're going in the right direction with this administration change? Well, I think that the fact the Trudeau administration has already spoken a bit about what they'll do in Paris is a good sign. They're going to um, go back to their provinces and speak to each one of the leaders about what, they can commit for um, future emissions reductions. So we hope that they'll have a new target in time for Paris, but if they don't, then we obviously hope that they're spending a lot of time with each one of the provincial leaders to find out how far they can go in reducing their emissions, especially in Alberta, you know, which is home to the tar sands. Uh, They also had a recent switch in the administration and are evaluating you know, how they're going to grow their economy moving forward and not have it be so dependent on one industry that causes so much carbon pollution every year. Um, So I think we're very hopeful that they're going to reevaluate the targets for Canada for 2030 going into Paris, and they'll also do more to limit emissions from the tar sand industry and moving on to, you know, other economic sectors. Do you think uh, Pope Francis will attend the, the conference? I've heard kind of mixed messaging. He may, he may not. Obviously, he made, you know, a big um, a big mark on everything when he did his encyclical, which uh, uh, was really widely seen as a call for action to put pressure on delegates at COP21. Well, you know, I haven't had any co- communication with him directly, but I would hope that, you know, if he's going to attend... I'm sure it would draw even more people to be part of this process. I think that, you know, the Vatican has released a really strong statement of why this is not only, you know, a serious environmental issue, it's also an issue of poverty and of so many other things um, tied into climate change because the changing climate is going to cause droughts, it'll cause floods, it'll really impact a lot of developing countries, and it is a moral call as well for us to do something about it. And you can all speaking about you know why this is important to us. You mentioned the droughts and flash floods. Floods it also will cause extreme heat waves. Um, you know we have coastal residents, hundreds of millions of coastal residents worldwide who are going to be affected by this. Um, there could also be water scarcity and changes in food supply, um, which would really, like you said, hit the developing world disproportionately. And and for all those who kind of argue you know against this i think it's really tough to take a lot of them seriously you know that's why i don't even really get into it that much because most people who want to do something about this or you know have some knowledge about it understand any topic where you have over 97 percent of experts in this case climate scientologists saying 
not only is there climate change, but it's man-made. You know, honestly, I I don't even need to bring that up with you because I think most of us who have a brain know that. But for those of us who want to learn more about it, can you explain to us why um, the number two degrees Celsius is so important? Yeah, sure. So two degrees Celsius was um, the number agreed to in Copenhagen by a number of world leaders, including President Obama and others, um, as sort of a, a benchmark for after hitting two degrees Celsius temperature rise since the level we've been at since the pre-industrial area, so the 1850s to 1880s. If we go over this number, it's assumed that a lot of the climate impacts will become even more severe. I mean, I think we can see there have been a number of, uh, you know, disasters already linked to climate. And while this is not the only number that's out there, it's sort of one of the lines um, that's considered safer. I mean, a lot of developing countries are actually pushing for an agreement in Paris where our number that we're looking to hit is only 1.5 degrees Celsius temperature rise. We're already at 0.85 degrees Celsius. So we're getting very close. And for a lot of developing countries, if we hit 1.5, they're already in severe danger. You know, the monsoon season will change erratically, and that'll impact agriculture in India, and it'll impact snowmelt, and sea level rise will be a huge issue for island states before two degrees. So two degrees is the number that a lot of countries have agreed to based on a previous agreement, but it's not necessarily the only number out there. And although it's not fun to talk about, it's very important to these negotiations and maybe a sticking point, um, talking about the the financial aspect of how much money it's going to take for the more developed countries to kind of help the developing countries. Um, what type of financial um, you know, numbers are we looking at that are going to have to be met in order to get things done, essentially? Yeah, I think that's a great question because, you know, before the conversation was only blame and developing countries, you know, saying we need more aid to deal with climate, so on. But you look at where this agreement is now, you've got 150 countries committing to do actions domestically, developing and developed countries. And, you know, for a lot of these developing countries, it's not easy to say that we will get to 50% renewables, you know, or we will reduce emissions in our auto sector or so on. And so it's not about asking for aid. It's about asking for, you know, investments in clean energy in other countries, for instance. You know, with India, they've got such an ambitious target, and I think they've done a great job at looking for partnerships and opportunities to leverage technologies from, you know, the U.S., private businesses, and other places to grow their own industries. And the, the question about numbers is very important because at Copenhagen, leaders agreed that we would provide from developed to developing countries $100 billion a year um, by 2020. And now we're seeing that we've already hit $62 billion that has already been mobilized just in the last year alone. So when you look at what they're counting, this is um, grants from governments. This includes loans from the World Bank and other financial institutions. It's a huge number, but it's actually only a small piece of the puzzle because we're only counting the money moving from developed to developing countries. When you talk about climate change, we also have to count the money domestically that we're spending on better renewables, technologies, and so forth. So we're talking about shifting trillions of dollars. 
um, you know, from high carbon investments to low carbon. So finance, it's important to talk about the $100 billion target for 2020, but it's also important to look beyond just that at the broader scope of, you know, having to move the entire economic, you know, package for entire countries. Han, it's been an absolute pleasure. We just, in our last minute, I wanted to give you an opportunity to uh, leave our audience with uh, whatever message you'd like to in the last minute here. Yeah, thank you. I mean, I think going back to those four areas of the agreement, you know, we we want a strong agreement coming out of Paris, but it's built on the fact that countries are committing committing to strong action domestically. Over 150 countries have already done this. And the one thing that I, you know, didn't, mentioned so far is there's also a really important subnational component because we've got, you know, mayors and governors around the world, including, you know, Jerry Brown and Michael Bloomberg, who've committed cities and states to acting as well. And so I don't want to only think of this as, you know, COP 21 for different countries to sign on to an international agreement. It's also about how this agreement is going to get businesses mobilized. It'll get cities and, you know, states galvanized to do more. And, um, you know, I'd be happy to talk more about that in the Q&A. Absolutely, Han. Uh, we, unfortunately, we are out of time now, but I just want to thank you again very much uh, for taking the time to join us. Um, if you'd like to uh, check out more of Han's work, you can actually follow her on Twitter. Her Twitter handle is at Han Chen 2010. So that's H-A-N-C-H-E-N 2010. The NRDC's website is nrdc.org. That was Han Chen, the international climate advocate with the NRDC.